If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to find the third from the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Haggai. Otherwise, we'll put the Scripture up for you here in a few moments. As we continue in our study in this book, which we're simply titling right out of the book itself, Consider Your Ways. That's The prophet says that twice in the first chapter, Consider Your Ways. Pretty strong verbiage, what you say. If, um, and by, I mean, I did, this is not really a Mother's Day message, but I think I heard my mom tell me that about 150 times, and that was just like my seventh grade year, so, but she kept me on the straight and narrow uh, for much of my life in as much as she could. The problem is everything she did was outward, and what I needed was an inward change, and that would come later. Haggai also saw that these Jewish people he was addressing had some serious issues. They were internal issues. They had some serious issues they were dealing with spiritually in their own life. And at this point in chapter 2, there is the struggle of just what was motivating them to do anything. So let me just ask you as we get going here this morning. If God asked you to serve him in some particular way... uh, What would it take to motivate you to obey him? Now, I'm asking you seriously, what would you internally, what would it take internally to motivate you, other than to just do it because it's the right thing to do? Would uh, the results of your obedience be be the motivation that would cause you to do what he tells you to do? Would the the impact or the influence you would have on somebody else, would that be a, motivation, a motivating factor for you to obey God? Or how about notoriety? Maybe just, you know, the fact that you would be known, people would know about you, and you, you would just, you know, you'd become popular, perhaps. Those are all motivations. I'm not saying they're good ones. They're motivations for why people do what they do. What if the results, what if your obedience to God and you were told that the results would not be great? And in fact, your influence would not be very far-reaching. And for that matter, you'd be forgotten after just a couple of years. Would you still obey him if he told you to do something? And what would be the motivating, what would motivate you to obey him if none of those other factors would be there? I'm going to suggest to you there are some genuine motivating factors in this text in Haggai chapter 2. So if you'd look at that, let me just read, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say... Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, once yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. Again, declares the Lord of hosts. If you're just joining us in this series, the Jewish people, the, the, the time is 520 BC, so 520 years before Christ. The Jewish people have returned from captivity in the area originally called Babylon. Babylon was overtaken by Persia, and the Persian king has, uh, has given an edict which has allowed the Jewish people still under captivity to make their way back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. That was in 538 B.C. A couple of years later, they laid the foundation of this temple. Great celebration, great pomp, great celebration. But like I said, that was two years after the edict in 538. So they laid the foundation in 536. The year is 520. And so, these Jewish people are losing their mojo, so to speak. They see the foundation, they see the outline of the foundation, they can see this, you know, this isn't that big. I can still remember when we, we did an addition in our nursery way back in the day, and, and uh, I was walking around the footprint of this thing, and man, this thing looked pretty small to me. So I went back to the committee where the architects were, and I said, I just walked around that thing. That looks pretty small. And they said, well, we wanted it to mirror the other side so that it would look, you know, be the same, you know, on the other side. I said, what, so an airplane could admire it? I didn't think it was small. It was small. And this temple was small. It was a lot smaller than the temple that Solomon had built many, many years, hundreds of years earlier and had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so they're seeing this, and they're just beside themselves, and they're losing their incentive. And they don't even have a king. They got a governor. They don't even have a king. His name is Zerubbabel. Well, make no mistake, Zerubbabel would be a king. He fell, he was heir to the throne. He was the grandson of Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, rather, who was a king of Israel. But remember, Israel was captured by the Babylonians and had been under captivity all that, all that time. And if you're under captivity, you don't get to have a king. You serve another king. And their king they served was Darius. He's mentioned in chapter 1. So Zerubbabel, who would be a king any other time, is only a the governor. They don't have a governor. And so, 26 days. Now, here's what's happened. So, so here they, they, they come back in 536. They laid the foundation. And for 16 years, it just sits there. After all the celebration, it doesn't go anywhere. They don't build the superstructure of the temple. And we gave reasons in another message why. I mean, the culture, uh, they were so very materialistic. They were afraid of their enemies that were around them. And they were comparing. You see the comparing here. They were comparing, you know, the, what was going to become of the new temple compared to the old one. Eh, it's just not like, it's not like, eh, it's not like it used to be. And all of this stuff just sort of stymied them. 16 years. 
They laid the foundation and nothing. This is a terrible testimony. And so God brings Haggai, the hammer, in. And he says, consider your ways. You're, you're taking care of yourselves. You're building your own nice homes, but you're not taking care of God's home. And look at the results. You're, you're, you're making money. You're putting your, your money into bags, and the bags have holes in it. Your money's bleeding out the back door. And what good is it doing you? Consider your ways. Go up in the mountains. Cut the lumber down. Build my temple. And sure enough, at the end of chapter 1, the people obey. They obey God, then God stirs up their spirit. It's, we, we talked about that the last time we were together on this, just the opposite of what we think. We usually have to have our spirit stirred, and then we obey. But the people of God, in this case, simply obeyed the word of God like we should, and then, having obeyed, God stirred them up. They're, they're, they go after it. And when we come to chapter 2, they, the building has been going on for 26 days, so not even a whole month. And already they're losing their mojo. Already they're, they're discouraged. God has to bring the hammer back again. And he speaks to them top down, speaks to Zerubbabel, the governor, would be king, but governor, to Joshua, the high priest, and then to all the remnants. So he's talking to everybody, but in, in that order. And preaches to them and basically just challenges them because the old codgers in their group are really, really discouraging the entire group. Now, how can that happen? Well, it happens all the time. And it happened because they were comparing what they remembered of the former glory of the temple back in Solomon's day, because some of these guys are old enough to remember that temple. And they're telling the rest of them, (laughs) you know, it ain't like it used to be, I'll tell you that right now. It's not going to be the same. And so Haggai comes in there. And they're so concerned because it's not going to be as glorious. In fact, it's going to be inglorious. Now, I want to share something with you this morning that you need to lock in, lock down, memorize, remember for the rest of your life. In God's mind, the only time something is inglorious is when he leaves it. God alone, his presence is what brings glory to something, to some place, to some person, to some venture. I don't care how big your venture is. I don't care how humongous it is. I don't care how much money you've dumped into it, how many resor- how much resources you, how much time, how much effort, how much talent, how many people you've gr- I don't care how huge this thing. If God isn't in it, it's inglorious. The only thing that makes something glorious or inglorious is whether God's in it. It's just that simple. Does that make sense to you? That's a true statement. And contrarywise, it doesn't matter how small, it doesn't matter how infinitesimal, it doesn't matter how minute, it doesn't matter how seemingly inconsequential, it doesn't matter if nobody's going to really care about this, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how tiny, itsy-bitsy it is. If God is in what you're doing, there is glory. Because he's in it. If God is in it, there's glory. doesn't matter how big doesn't matter how small. The difference maker is the presence of God. And that becomes one of the primary motivating factors in this exhortation from the prophet Haggai. Remember Jesus? He said, without me, you can what? 
You can do what? You can do nothing. Doesn't matter how big it is. Doesn't matter how small it is. If he's not in it, eh, it isn't going to happen. In the days of Samuel, some of you remember, these are tough days. Eli was the ungodly high priest. He had a couple of ungodly sons, and, and, uh, and they went out to battle, and they died. And the Ark of the Covenant, representing the very presence of God, is taken by the Philistines. You remember that story? A messenger comes back and says, yep, kids are dead. And, and oh, yeah, the Philistines got the Ark, too. Oh! He has a heart attack, drops dead. So, in one fell swoop, you got the kids that died, the high priest is dead, the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the enemy, and Eli's daughter-in-law is giving birth to a kid at the same time. What do you name a kid? Back in Bible times, you're always naming your kids after the circumstances. What do you say? She does, the Bible says she doesn't even care. She has a kid, she doesn't even care the kid's being born. I don't even care. What are you going to name it, they ask Name it inglorious, Ichabod. That's what Ichabod means. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. Glory, God's there. Ichabod, the I, negates the word inglorious. In fact, that was her actual testimony. She said, quote, the glory has departed from Israel. If you are familiar with another Old Testament book of Ezekiel, there is a dramatic course of chapters in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 where the presence of God is visualized by Ezekiel as over the, uh, the mercy seat and hovering over and then moving away from the mercy seat and then moving out to the outer skirts of the temple and then moving up to the hillside and then moving out of town. Ichabod, the glory is... Gone. Oh, the temple was still there. I'm sure that they continue to do services. But you see, it really doesn't matter, and it never will, how big or small your venture. It only matters if God is in it. Because if God is in it, there's glory. Do you believe that? So here you have less than a month after Haggai the hammer has come in there and they're, you know, they're obeying, their spirits have been stirred, they pull down the lumber, they're cutting it up and they're starting to lay, they're starting to build on this foundation, they're starting to build the superstructure and they're dragging their feet. And so Haggai comes and he, he speaks to everyone. You'll notice repeatedly he, he always goes top down. Zerubbabel, Joshua, all the remnant. So he's talking to everybody, so it's, all, it's applicable to us too. But he hones in on one group of people. Who are they? It's the old codgers. He says to him, he says, who among you saw the former glory? He's talking about the temple of Solomon that had been built around 900, but it had, had been 66 years earlier, had been destroyed brick by brick by Nebuchadnezzar. And totally wiped out. All the silver was taken. All the gold was taken. It was decimated. But they remembered that. That, that, was, that was a wonder of the world. And he said, how, who among you would have remembered that? And how is this one looking to you right now? So he's really focusing in on them right now. 
If you recall, this old group, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we went back to Ezra, and Ezra records the actual happening when they came back and built the, laid the foundation, and there's all kinds of celebration. They're cheering, waving their tamarind, beating their drums. They got electric guitars the whole nine yards. And just tons of celebration, but in Ezra, we're told, that simultaneous, while all the cheering was going on, the older people were crying and wailing. It was sort of a, what, what you, we call a cacophony, a bad sound. You had praise and whining at the same time. Why? Because they, 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 could, see the, they could see the outlying of the foundation. It's not going to be like it used to be. That was 16 years earlier. Here's the point. It's now 16 years later. They're still whining. They're still complaining. And so Haggai is zeroing in on them right now. And he's asking them some questions. What's this like? In your mind, what's this? What is this? Is this? What is it? Just, it's not like the former glory? Let me tell you something. Whatever you're comparing your current situation with to the past, it's never the same. Isn't that true? It's never the same. It might be greater, it might be lesser, but it's never the same. I was thinking about this as it pertains to the church. God has been very good to Sailorville Church. Very good. Recently, I talked with a pastor who confessed to me that in spite of his efforts, after two years, he's not led one soul to Jesus Christ, not one. And not long after, I talked to another pastor who pastors a large church nearly approximately the same size as this one. You know what he said to me? He says, I'm not sure if half the people in our church are unconverted. And I'm talking people who claim to be converted, he said. He's so frustrated by the the rebellious spirits of the entire congregation. I just wanted to run back and say, well, thank you, thank thank you. I I really was grateful. But I was thinking about this. In spite of the fact that Sailorville has tripled in size and planted three churches. Bless the Lord. Amen. But let me fast forward 15 years. 15 years from now, okay? What will we look like in 15 years? Even as I thought about that, I thought of, a, of a, an individual from another institution came to my office while we were going through our name change, and he said, I'm just so worried about what you're going to be like what you're going to be like in five years. I said, yeah, I know. What are you going to be like in five years? I said, what kind of question is that? I don't know what I'm, I don't know what we're going to be like in five years. Do you know what you're going to be like in five years? There's no guarantee of this, is there? Here's my question. Is what God is doing here so powerful, so self-sustaining, so guaranteed that in 15 years, it'll be better or at least as good? Is there a guarantee of that? You know the answer to that. And what if it's not? What if it's not? What if some of you that are young, you right now that are 18 and 19 and 25 years old, and you've all but grown up around here, and you've been a part of the momentum of the last several years, What if you left and you came back 15 years only to discover 
that by some unfortunate, sinful, unforeseen course of events, Sailorville Church is down to just a fledgling group of people. There's only maybe, you know, there might be a couple hundred in a good day. And what if, you know, maybe I dropped dead five years earlier. I can't even offer an opinion on the deal. So if you came back to something like that, would that disappoint you? Of course it would. But what if, what if at that time, 15 years from now, you circle back and God raises up some young, dynamic man of God whose hand, whose, whose God's hand is upon, he's gospel-centered, he wants to win people to Christ, he wants to shake the trees for Jesus, and a little is starting to happen in the earlier days, and you're kind of, and there's a few people that are getting excited, are you going to be a part of that group that says, eh, you know, not like it used to be. It was so much cooler. It was so much bigger. They sing so much louder. The, sir, the first service sings a lot louder. I'm just telling you, okay? Are you going to be like that? Or are you going to say, by the grace of God, I'm going to follow that guy. We're going to go out there. We're going to, we're going to follow our man. We're going to win souls for Christ. We're going to do this for the glory of God. I'm telling you that because this isn't theoretical. This kind of scenario I just laid out happens All the time. All the time. In fact, when I first went to the church I first pastored 27 years ago, there were just a couple of dozen people there. And they were all like 155 and older. They were really old. But they got their canes out and they followed. And God blessed. And we grew, and people got saved, and the church began to grow, and the church exploded, and we built a brand new facility, and and we brought on another staff, and right up till we left 12 years later, God was blessing, the church was full, things were happening, there was glory. That was 15 years ago. We left 15 years ago. And I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that the glory of God follows me or anything like that. I don't mean anything like that. I'm just saying, over the next 15 years, that church ebbed and flowed. For the, the first eight, it did just fine. God was still blessing. Souls were still being saved. But then it started to incrementally go down. Series of unfortunate events, sinful circumstances, lazy clergy, dead times are up to nearly three years being without a pastor just beat that church down to where today they're about down to where they were when I came 27 years ago. Now, is that sad? Is that sad to this? That's sad to me. I love that church. But God has raised up a young man, dynamic man, a little Haggai. His name's Zach. Zach Fisher is a member at Sailorville Church. He just accepted the call to that church. And we've invested in this young man. And he's on fire for God. He wants to win people to Jesus. And he's not going to go there and just simply remember the former days of glory. He's going there with all he's got. What this, this text tells us, and he's going there with the presence of God, the power of God, and the promises of God. And that's it. That's enough. That's what this text says. 
Look at it. He says in verses 4 and 5, be strong. Go to work. I'm with you. My spirit's with you. That should be enough for all of us. And this is it. It's the same truths throughout history that have motivated the saints of God. Be strong. Go to work. I'm with you. My spirit's with you. If God has directed you to do anything, you can be sure of three things. One, he will give you the strength. Two, he'll accompany your effort. And three, he'll keep his promises. You just mark it down. If God is in the venture, he'll give you the strength to do it. He'll accompany you on the venture. And he'll keep his promises in the course of events. Three things every one of us need. Power, presence, promise. Got it? You ought to mark them down. Power, the power of God, the presence of God, and the promises of God. And they're all here. They're all here in this passage of Scripture. Power. Be strong. He doesn't just say it once. Zerubbabel be strong. Joshua be strong. All the remnant be strong. Three times. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. It sounds so, you know, empty sometimes. Hey, be strong. I can remember when my, when my wife died, my father-in-law came to the house, put his hand on my shoulder and said, be strong, Pat. Okay. I would need to be strong. But the truth of the matter is, this was a powerful admonition to these Jewish people. This was the thing God has told the people of Israel from time immortal to Moses. Moses, I don't know, I can't even talk. God says, be strong, Moses. I'm with you. Moses says the exact same thing to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. And you can just trace the history of Israel. They're always being told, be strong. David, and David is Solomon. And right down to the New Testament age in which we live right now, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, be strong. Except it adds a prepositional phrase that we appreciate. In the Lord. Right? And the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. So be strong. So the power is available. And please note, it wasn't enough for God to say, Zerubbabel will be strong. Joshua will be strong. But all the remnant were told to be strong. It's not enough for you, for me to be strong. It's not enough for you, for me and the elders, leaders, pastors, deacons of our church to be strong. You are responsible to be strong in the Lord on your own. And if the strength is coming from God, and he's in the venture, there's glory. Because wherever God is, there's glory. There's presence. Look at it twice. He says, I'm with you. And then he says, my spirit is with you. The last words of Jesus, before he ascended up into heaven, should be good enough for us. Lo, quote it with me. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, when Jesus said that, he didn't make any promises about the impact they were going to make. He didn't make any promises about the the influence they'd have on others. He didn't make any promises about notoriety. They all, all but one of them died of martyrdom. He did say the gospel was going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, but he didn't say who was going to do it. But he did say, I'll be with you, and that was good enough. It should be good enough for you and me.
power and presence and promise. You'll notice in verse 5, he says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, that was a thousand years earlier. Remember, this is 520 B.C. Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt up to Sinai. Where those promises he just refers to came, that's about 1,500, 1,500, give or take a, a couple of dozen years B.C. We're talking 900 plus years earlier. Here's the point. The promises were still good. And they're still good for you. And they're still good for me. If you want motivation for doing anything for God, then you have them right here. Power, presence, promise. The latter part of this almost seems incongruent. He says, in verse 6, he says, Yet once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land. I'm going to shake the nations. So the treasures of the earth, uh, the nations will come in. I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house, he says, will be greater than the former. In other words, you think you saw glory? You've seen nothing yet. But what's this business of of all that, you know, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and all. Remember who he's talking to? He's talking to everybody, but he's talking specifically to the older people. Remember that? Remember he says, who among you saw the former glory? What's it looking like to you now? Is it nothing in your eyes? You've got to keep that in mind because that will make these verses make sense. He says, there's coming a great shakedown. These older people don't didn't just remember the glorious temple of Solomon. They remembered its dismantling. They remember Nebuchadnezzar coming in there and just busting it down, taking away the silver, taking away the gold, obliterating the temple, annihilating Jerusalem. And so Haggai is saying, you think that shakedown was bad? Holy smokes, you you have no idea what's coming. We're talking cosmic shakedown. In fact, this is, that, this is the only verse in Haggai found in the New Testament where we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, these very words, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only earth, the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's a quote right out of Haggai in Hebrews 600 years later. There's coming a really, really great shake, greater shakedown. Every one of us are going to get shaken down. Every one of you are going to be shaken down. You'll get shaken down in this life as well. God has a way of shaking us down. Until the only thing left is that which can remain. And if God strips you down of everything and you still have Jesus, then you have glory. There's glory in you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Have you ever read that? But if you don't have Jesus, there'll be no glory. Not now, not ever. The great shakedown is coming. And when it comes, 
The only question is going to be, have you placed your faith in the living God and in his son, Jesus, who was the glory of God, who tabernacled amongst men, who comes to live within us when we trust him as our savior? Think about that, the glory of God living inside of you. So that when everything else gets removed, if that's there, you're in. That's a good thing, right? Now, some of you are here this morning and you think, I'm in. Really? You, are, you, are you really sure about that? Just last week, I preached in Philadelphia in a church plant where a young man that interned under me several years ago. And I preached on evangelism and I preached an evangelistic message. A number of people raised their hand. Not, not many, but a few adults raised their hand to trust Christ as Savior. It was a wonderful thing. One individual, we didn't know. I, just, I, I, only had, I kind of described her to the pastor before I left so that he could find her. He did. In fact, he forwarded me this email that she sent him. She said this. Yes, I was one of the people who raised my hands during the service. Although I have grown up in the church and even whispered the sinner's prayer, I realized last Sunday that I had truly not accepted Jesus. Although I identified and truly believed Christianity, my heart wasn't in it. There was something missing, and that was Jesus' blood washing away all my sins. So this past Sunday, Pat's sermon really convicted me and made me realize what I was missing. I thank God that he put me in that service to hear those words to convict my heart. And so it's hard to describe, although I'm a new Christian, I have been surrounded by Christianity all my life. I even considered myself a follower of Christ, but now I know I'm a true follower of Christ, end quote. Now here is a woman who had all the facts, she had all the knowledge, and no glory. Do you? Do you have a personal relationship with the living God through his son? Really? I mean, really, do you have a personal relationship with him? Because if you do, no matter what venture you're in, no matter how big it is or how small, the only issue is whether God is in it. If he's in it, there's glory. And if there's glory, there's power. And where there's power, there is his presence And what keeps us continually fueled are his promises that never fail. They're always yes. Amen? So, as we prepare for the Lord's table, in this passage, at the very end, Haggai says, there is a future glory coming that will make the Solomon temple pale. This table here is just a picture of a greater meal that's going to take place for those who follow the living God. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where we'll sit down with Jesus himself and have a meal. How cool will that be? This is sort of a practice session as we prepare our hearts to meet him Are you ready for that day? The great supper in the sky that this is just a picture of? 
in order to partake of this moment in the Lord's table, you have to know the living God. You have to have had a time where you placed your faith in him. The bread and the juice, they don't become holy. They're symbols, but they're powerful symbols of the glorious life of Jesus, pictured in the bread, never sinned, and the glorious sacrificial death of Jesus, who died for your sins and mine. And we remember that, and we examine ourselves, and we seek forgiveness from God, from others. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, this would be a perfect time to acknowledge your sin. Like Leona, a 40-something-year-old, just last week, around Christianity, just like a lot of you, all of her life, could speak the jargon. She had the lingo. She didn't have the Lord. And if there's no glory in you, you have a very fearful ending when the great shakedown comes. So seriously think about this as we approach the Lord's table. Do you know Jesus? If you don't, just humble your heart. Believe that he died for you personally and rose again for you. And believe that the glorious Lord Jesus will come to live within you if you'll invite him in. And if you do know Jesus... What is it that's motivating you to do whatever you're doing? We've got three of them right here. Power, presence, and promise. Will you bow with me? Our Father, we thank you for this great, albeit little prophet, Haggai. Came on the scene and left. We don't know much about him before or after. That'll probably describe most of our lives here, Lord. Are we content with that? To not be known very much when we're (laughs) dead and gone? Lord, we know that you have a book of remembrance, and that's all that counts. You keep the right score. And your son, Jesus, he, he paid the full debt for all of us when he died and rose again. And if we would place our faith in him with all of our hearts, we could have that glory in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. I pray for those right now. If that's you, if you're praying right now and you say, ah, it's me, I'm like that woman, I'm I'm not saved. I'm lost, I'm separated from God, but I want to be saved. I want my sins to be forgiven. Then just tell God that. If you believe that Jesus is the one who died and rose for you, Believe in him right now with all of your heart. Believe in him. If you're a follower of Jesus, is God's power and promise, presence, that good enough for you? Should be. You get up and go to work for his glory. Is there something right now that has kept you from obeying God? Some other secret motivation for glory, personal glory, or personal influence, or some kind of impact, big wise. I mean, God knows your heart, and we all want to make the biggest impact we can, but 
if your desire is for your own self-glorying, it won't be blessed. God won't be in it. And there will be Ichabod, inglorious elements to whatever you're trying to do. Lord, we realize the only thing that makes anything inglorious is your absence. We pray that your presence would be in this church, in our families, in our lives individually. And you would bless us because we need your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.